Today's preaching passage comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. You can find it there in your worship folder. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. You may sit down. Well, this is fun. Uh, I was joking with uh, Mark that maybe I should take a selfie. (laughs) But I think that would be inappropriate. I get a lot of letters afterwards, and I'm going on holiday, and I don't want any letters, so... I made a real-time decision not to take a selfie. Um, I'll keep uh, the Bible passage we just had read open. And I'm a little unused to the acoustics here. How is it at the back? Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Uh, We're looking at Ephesians uh, 4 and verses 1 through to 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Pastor Eric read it out for us. One pastor who is now deceased, Um, I particularly like quoting from dead pastors because then I feel secure that they're not going to have a moral failing. (laughs) I'm actually being serious, but um, one pastor who uh, is now in glory said this about the church. He said, the one hope for the world is a revived church. What do you think about that statement? In other words, this passage that we're looking at this morning is obviously about the unity of the church. It's obviously talking about us here. And as we think about the unity of the church, it is tempting perhaps to consider that this is something only for us here. 
But that quotation from that pastor now in glory, the one hope for the future of the world is a revived church. What do you think about that? In other words, as we read our newspapers, as we read the blogs, as we think about what's going on in the world today, our minds race and consider what on earth are we going to do about this, that, or the other? What is the solution to all those problems? And God has a solution, and it is called the church, but a revived church. It's very much what's going on in the book of Ephesians. Paul, the great apostle, is writing this letter that one New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, called the quintessential Paulinism, which is a fancy way for saying it's some of the best stuff he ever wrote. The apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at at Ephesus, a church that he founded in great drama. He went there, and he was uh, preaching in the synagogue, and then he was thrown out of the synagogue, and then he went next door, door to the Hall of Tyrannus, a lecture hall, and uh, he, uh, Luke tells us in Acts, declared God's word for two years so that the whole of Asia, the province of Asia, heard God's word, and churches were planted from Ephesus throughout that region. It was the great beachhead central church for the province of Asia. And Paul, having preached there, then there's a great riot for the drama of the gospel takes hold, and those who do not want to hear the gospel begin to oppose it, and Paul leaves and is protected by his friends from this riot, this chaos that takes place in the city, and he returns to give a farewell to the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God that is under your care. And then the church of Ephesus appears again in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, where the, uh, the, God's word there comes from Jesus to that church saying, remember your first love. And this letter comes in between those two events. It is a great church with huge influence that has received God's word and needs now to understand the urgency with which Paul is writing to it. Did you grasp that at the beginning of the passage? He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, as a prisoner for the Lord. This is actually the second time he has brought out the big guns. That is, guys, I'm in jail. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I am suffering for the work of the gospel. I want you to visualize and imagine those chains. And as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. This is not a minor matter. This is not an insignificant message. This is not a subsidiary subsidiary point that isn't central to what he's about. This is the one thing that he wants to say to this great church at Ephesus as he is in chains. I urge you. That uh, phrase, I urge you, has a great sense of haste to it. Uh, It could be translated, make haste. I urge you. Uh, One uh, scholar translated it somewhat freely like this. Yours is the initiative, do it now, I urge you. 
So Paul, he writes this letter to the Ephesians. He has established, first of all, the gospel in chapters 1 through to 3. He's described that gospel, and then he has prayed for the church. He has poured out his heart for them, that they would be not only established and rooted in God's love, but have strength to grasp the height and the depth and the width of God's love for them. He's, he's interceding for them as their pastor, and having established his credentials yet again as a prisoner for the Lord, having established yet again the gospel in this church that is a solid and good church with huge influence, having prayed for them, now in chapter 3, he becomes very practical, and he talks about the church. I urge you, he'll deal with holiness later, and then spiritual warfare, but now in this chapter 4, he's talking about the church, and he is urging the individual Christians at Ephesus to grasp the significance of what he is saying, not the subsidiary, relatively unimportant nature of the church, but the central aspect of God's church in God's plan to reach the world. And he has a metaphor, a picture to establish that. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That is, you Christians have been called to be Christians. You've been called to follow Jesus, and you've been called as a body, a body of Christ, and I want you now to think of yourself not as individuals, but as a single body that has been built up in love to the head that is Christ. That is, we together now, Paul is saying, are one. We're actually not divided by race or color or class or social, economic status. We're actually united, and he wants us to grasp the significance of that unity and indeed to fight for it. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling of you receive. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. I urge you. Now, this is quite a different idea about church than we often think, isn't it? What's the old story about church? The old saying, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, that's a whole different story. And yet Paul has a different vision for the church. He explains it in three uh, sections. First, unity, verses 1 to 6. Then the uh, word gifts, verses 7 to 11. And then the ministry of all God's people. First, unity. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are united we are not united by similar tastes in sport, which is good news for me because I know that none of you like rugby. 
We are not united by the building in which we meet. We are not united by our taste in uh, music. We are united by the work of God's Spirit. Now, of course, we have to be careful here because there are many different forms of unity. Charles Spurgeon, another dead pastor that I like to quote from, put it like this. The text bids us keep the unity of the Spirit, but it does not tell us to maintain the unity of evil, the unity of superstition, or the unity of tyranny. We are not united by our taste in clothes. We're not united by our tendency to prefer one kind of uh, book over another kind of book or our taste in entertainment and all these things. We're united in God's spirit by the gospel in the one Lord. And that is the unity that we must guard. But not all unity is that unity. Some forms of unity are not what we have and experience here today. But we have that unity and we know it. We know it because we are connected even when we all gather together like this. You don't have to know the personal preference that this person on the other side of the room has about their particular sports to be united. There is a mystical, spiritual union that we experience this morning. It is a connection that cannot be explained in any other way other than the power of Christ. We're not united by institutional affiliation. We are spiritually united. You know, you can explain uh, in human ways how uh, a small group of friends getting together is united. Uh, they know each other. They know what each other like. They've got, to, got familiar with each other. You can explain how a family is united. They're united by blood, by the same DNA. There, there are family connections. But there is simply no other explanation for the unity that we experience this morning other than the unity that we have in Christ by His Spirit. Is that true? Is that not something to rejoice in this morning? That you, my friend, you have a family that you are part of a body, that you no longer need to walk this world alone. You are connected to Christ, but not just connected to Christ. Because you're connected to Christ, you are now connected with one another. And that bond of unity is established by Christ at the cross. And it is something to rejoice over. It is something to urgently maintain. You say, how do I maintain it? Paul's very clear about that. You maintain it with humility. Consider others better than yourself. You maintain it with gentleness. You speak kindly. You maintain it with patience. You have a long fuse before you lose your temper. 
you maintain it with love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You maintain it, that is, in the bond of peace. When someone says something you don't like, you don't quickly go to war. You remember that you're united to that person. You maintain, therefore, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So first of all, unity. Second, verses 7 to 11, there are these word gifts. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It's a rather complicated set of words there, but simply it means this. When Jesus descended, that is, when he was incarnate as a man, he descended to the very earth, the lower regions, that is, the world, the earth. When he descended, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even to death on a cross, but then he was resurrected and he was ascended into heaven. And at the right hand of God, then he poured out gifts on his people. He's like a triumphal parade into the heavenlies with all the captives, all the victory that he's won over death and hell and sin. Now glorified, he pours out his spirit on his people. That is, Paul is referencing the great event at Pentecost when God poured his spirit on his people, gave grace gifts. And these gifts that he mentions are specific There are other gifts that Paul elsewhere describes, gifts of administration, gifts of encouragement. These are very important gifts. But here, Paul specifically, because of his agenda of describing to the church at Ephesus the significance of that church as the great hope for the world that they be united, and not only united, but revived and grow and attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Because of that agenda in this passage, he is not only describing every kind of spiritual gift that Jesus has given his church. He has a particular set of gifts in mind, and each of these gifts are word gifts. So contrary to everything that so often is said, actually the unity of God's people does not come as we abandon Bible teaching. It does not come as we abandon truth speaking. Actually, the unity of God's people is furthered and deepened and established in greater and more profound ways as we teach the Bible, as we study the Bible, as we treasure the Bible, as we support those who have been called to teach the Bible, whether from the pulpit or in Sunday school or in small groups or at the home, that God has given grace gifts, whether it's apostles and prophets or evangelists, or pastor teachers. He's given these gifts to the church for the establishment of the church so that they would then be equipped for the work of ministry. So in this section here in the middle, Paul's putting in place the great engine of reviving the church, uniting the church, and establishing the church for further progress for the gospel around the world. And that is the very thing the churches across the land are abandoning and putting to one side. That is the ministry of God's Word. And what I want to say to you, Cottage Church, we can get a lot of things wrong as a church. We must not get this wrong. 
You know, I sometimes joke when I'm in uh, doing a premarital counseling with people who are about to get married, and Rochelle's there, and we're talking to the couple, and I, I joke like this. I say, look, my friend, you can get a lot of things wrong, and sometimes I do. But the one thing you must not get wrong as a husband is you must adore your wife. If you get that right, you can get a lot of other things wrong and get away with it. Not that I recommend getting those other things wrong. There are many things that we should do as a church, and we do them excellently. We should have excellent administration, and we do that. We should have encouragement and writing letters of encouragement, speaking kindly. Paul has already talked about the importance of that, but the one thing that we must not ever abandon as a church if we want to maintain our health and grow our health and have an impact, a growing impact in the world around to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, the one thing we must not abandon is the teaching of the Bible in every area of the church. I just want to... one little anecdote to tell you that. I'm, I've, a lot of, and you, this may relate to some of you here. People now are coming to me. They're coming to me and they're looking for a church that is basically well-ordered, has a good eldership that we do. People serve in that kind of way that we're healthy in that sense. And they say they're coming for a church that actually does what? Teaches the Bible. Why are the churches across America abandoning God's Word? We as a church must stay sound to that, must stay established upon that basis and advocate for that and train people to be able to do that if the church is to be healthy and grow. The charisma, the teaching of the Bible in every area, not just in the pulpit, in our children's ministry, in our small groups, in our adult communities. So we have unity. We have Jesus by his ascension, pouring his spirit upon his people that there might be grace gifts that the Bible might be taught, whether it's apostles or evangelists or prophets or, as today, pastors and teachers. So the church will be built up and equipped. Now we come to the equipping, verses 12 to 16. To equip, or um, in my translation here in front of me, to prepare God's people for works of service or for ministry, because ministry just means serving, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So uh, church is not a um, one-horse race. Church is not about, you know, we hire a pastor, he does all the ministry, and we sit back and watch it happen. Well done, pastor. Good job. Actually, the pastor's job is to equip And all of our jobs, me included, is to do ministry, having been so equipped, that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. That is, we have unity, and yet we need to keep on working hard to maintain it, that we will be further connected, furthered in our love for each other, furthered in our appreciation of each other, until we all reach unity. We are united, and we need to grow in unity. Works of service, as we already heard, from the helping hands and all these other beautiful ministries that we have. Unity in the faith, that is, it is not unity of error, 
It is not unity of evil. It is not unity of tyranny. It is unity around the truth of God, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, the personal relationship with Jesus, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're going to grow up into Jesus and become increasingly connected to Him and increasingly grow in our knowledge of Him and increasingly grow in our impacts as a church in the world around, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We are to increase as a church. I've got another quotation here from Charles Spurgeon, but I can't find it. It's probably a good thing. British preachers always quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've done it once, and that's probably one too many. So, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves. You know, I, I wish I could write how Paul wrote. He obviously was a brilliant writer. But these days, you cannot do what he does here, which he mixes his metaphors all the time. So in this passage, we're a body, and then we're a building, and now we're on a ship. But if you're an apostle, you can get away with it with your publishers. I can't. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. That phrase in the original is emphasized over and over again. He's reaching for different ways that the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Here's a word. I've emphasized already the Bible teaching. Here's a word as to why from the Apostle Paul. If you read any Christian literature today, If you read anything that has been said or preached on YouTube or published on the internet, you will know that there are a whole bunch of different ideas about what the church is and what the gospel is and what the Bible means and all the rest. And we just must be aware that there is this category in life called false teaching. And we need not to be, uh, you know, um, overly suspicious and sort of nasty about it. But there is this category called false teaching. And part of maturity, which of course we have as a church in so many different ways, part of growing into the whole measure of the fullness of Christ is being able to look at that false teaching and, as it were, generate a sense of smell about it and just realize that doesn't sound right. And as we speak the truth in love to each other increasingly, we will avoid that. So verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, or literally truthing in love. We in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we have unity that we must maintain and grow in. We have the grace gifts that God, Jesus, has given to his church, poured out his spirit on his church. Paul here is emphasizing the Bible teaching, the word gifts. And now we have speaking the truth in love. What does that mean, you say? Here's what it means. Would you make a commitment this summer? to read the Bible yourself each day. 
How are you to speak the truth in love if you don't know the truth? How are you to get in shape spiritually if you only work out on Sunday? Would you make a commitment to read the Bible yourself each day? I know that can become legalistic for some people. I'll give you grace. If you skip a couple of days, it's all right. But would you make that commitment to be in God's Word this uh, summer? Would you make a commitment, husbands, fathers, to read the Bible to your children and to read the Bible with your wife? If you're not already doing that, would you make that commitment? Would you therefore, growing in your understanding of God's Word, share the Bible in increasing ways with each other, small groups, adult communities, in relationship? Well, I'm heading off for the summer pretty soon. Someone asked me before I came in here, am I excited about the service? And of course, the right answer is yes, this is brilliant, amazing. I'm afraid what I said was, well, I'm excited about tomorrow. (laughs) There's a little bit of truth to that. But the true truth is that I love you. I believe in what God is doing here among us as a church. And as it were, my last message to us before I take a break from the pulpit, come back uh, in uh, mid-August or thereabouts, my last message is this one, unity for maturity, increasing impact for God, the significance of what we're doing here for the all the chaos that's going on in the world around us, the church is God's means to change the world. And the key thing we must never lose sight of is the teaching of the Bible and the learning of the Bible. Would you commit to do that? I hope that's a yes. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you for this service. Thank you for the wonderful musicians. Thank you for all the work they've done putting it together. And we pray now as we come to sing that we would be sent out with celebration and joy, that we would um, relish the rest of the day together as families. And Lord, that we would chew on this truth from God's Word this week, that our gathering together this Sunday is your way of reaching the world with the gospel, that we are to be shaped in the form of Jesus Christ as Jesus' church, filled with love, speaking the truth in love. And so, Lord, would it be true that increasingly we would, as your people, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.